And because we believe it's the Word that does the work, I want to invite you to get your Bibles and let's prepare to look into Scripture for a few moments this morning. As you do, can I take a poll of the audience this morning? I know we have a number of guests with us from out of town, from local, but let me just see if I can take a quick poll. Uh, it's not anything that matters, so relax. Uh, but I'm just curious, it will help us give some framework for what's ahead in this chapter we're looking at today. Uh, how many of you, if you were to encounter a situation, an incident, or an event, I'm going to give you two options, so don't raise your hands yet. You would rather have a detailed account or a succinct summary. Who here says, Todd, give me the detailed account? Raise your hands. Okay eyeballing it, not the majority. How many of you would say, I'll take a succinct summary? Okay, most of you are saying it depends. That's actually a good answer. It does depend. But for the sake of the poll, I wanted to kind of ask you that question because it helps us think about what we're going to read in Matthew 28. You know, Matthew 28 is one of the accounts of the resurrection, and it is a high-level summary of what occurred on day 8 which would have been April 5th, A.D. 33. And not only on that day, but what would have occurred in the next several days, there were 40 days of Christ's appearances after his resurrection. And Matthew gives us a, a high-level summary of those days. Now, if you want more details, I'd encourage you to check out Luke and John. They give um, an incredible amount of relational detail. Matthew gives us, however, key insights and thematic elements. Of course, all of them are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. And so when we read them, we understand, okay, what is the author trying to communicate? And, and I want you to see that in Matthew's account, I think that the, the, the target he's aiming for is not only the event of the resurrection, which we'll look at, but also the expectation of the resurrection. So, Bible's open to Matthew 28. You're there with me, right? Let me read for you the entire chapter in different sections and walk you through a few things about this that I think will help us understand both its event and its expectation. First of all, Matthew records for us in the first 10 verses what I call the miracle of the resurrection. Follow with me. I'll begin in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, this would have been probably anywhere from 2 a.m. to, let's say, 5 a.m. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. There was a, uh, and because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb, he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there. Listen, I've told you. And so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. 
They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. A relatively short description of a quite miraculous event. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot going on that we would love to dig into and delve into and find out more about. Just note these two things from Matthew's account. First of all, it was a victorious miracle. I mean, when you look at the text with me, especially verses 2 through 4, an earthquake occurred, a stone is removed and rolled away. There's an angel that has the appearance of lightning. In addition, the guards who were there are passed out like dead men. So if you're one of the ladies walking up, you're thinking somebody won and somebody lost, right? You're thinking victory. This was a victorious miracle. Christ had been raised, defeating death, sin, hell, and the grave. This was evident in that first visit to the empty tomb. But I want you to notice something else. It's also a verified miracle. This is quite intriguing to me that in Matthew's account, he lists at least two evidences that would hold up for any of us in conversation or in a court. He mentions, first of all, an empty tomb. Notice how the angel's not trying to misdirect or distort. The angel says, come, have a look. We're not hiding anything. He's not here. And so there's this empty tomb that's clear evidence Jesus has risen. But also there are eyewitnesses. You see both of these in between verses 5 and 6 and 7 and all the way to 10. Eyewitnesses, these two women who not only saw the evidence of the empty tomb, they saw the one who was in the tomb but is now alive, Jesus. And let's be frank, in that culture, as in this culture, two witnesses, it's a substantial amount of credibility in any court or conversation. And so the miracle of the resurrection here that Matthew's recording, it's interesting that it has two elements to it, both a supernatural element, angels, um, appearance of lightning, stone being moved, Christ being raised, and yet it's got a historical element. There are people who saw it and verified it in real time and space. You see, this is exactly what a miracle is. It's the supernatural and historical in a single moment. That's what the resurrection is. And God is so gracious to us to give us both of these in the miracle of the resurrection. Both of these on which to set our feet. Something occurred that was historical, verifiable, accurate, seen in time and space, and yet it's supernatural, unexplainable humanly. It's the miracle of the resurrection. So fret not, fellow Christian. Relax, brother and sister. The evidence is mightily, confidently in our corner. You need not try to prove something that has already been proven. You simply need to stand on it and let it speak for itself. It's a miracle, a miraculous one, a, a verifiable one. Without a doubt, at that moment, heaven and history intersected. And Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So hearing Matthew walk us through that event, it makes sense why he would next insert how the Jewish leaders tried to fabricate a different story. They didn't want that story spreading. 
And so next we see really what I would call the manipulation of the resurrection. This is found, oh, about verses 11 to 15. Follow along with me. The Bible says this, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So some were off to tell the disciples the good news. The soldiers now were going to the Jewish leaders to tell them the news. And I believe they were going to tell the news that, hey, uh, this is true stuff. Jesus Christ is not there. The tomb is empty. He's alive. But watch this, verse 12. After the priest had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan. A plan for what? A plan to keep the soldier's first report silent. <laughs> it says this. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money. And they told them, say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. And if this reaches the governor's ears, which by the word this, he means the fact that you were sleeping on the job. If that reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they, speaking of these guards, they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has spread among the Jewish people to this day. So just watch from this text how the Jewish leaders, it's interesting, it's the Jewish leaders, it's the religious leaders trying to deconstruct and downplay the story. And they did it in two ways. They first of all bribed the guards. And can we just admit this isn't the first bribe to occur in these eight days? The first one occurred when Judas was given 30 pieces of silver to turn the Son of God over to authorities. But that didn't stop. Jesus did it. And neither will this large sum of money given to the guards. They took it anyway, and they began to circulate a story. And so they not only bribed the guards, they blasted a false narrative. I mean, this is hush money, first century style. Are you with me? And man, you can see how this story did spread a bit. In fact, I want you to notice something I think is quite intriguing. You see what Matthew does? He admits, yes, this story's kind of been spread among the Jews to this day. But he's making that very specific statement to indicate something to us. It didn't get much traction. Like it, it probably didn't get outside of Jerusalem very much. It probably didn't get outside of that immediate audience. That's his point of saying, yeah, it spread to the Jews to this day. Like it's got a minimal amount of hearers. But the news of Christ's resurrection, the miraculous miracle, it spread like wildfire. Here's why. Because of the wind of the Holy Spirit. You see, the wind of the Holy Spirit was not behind the false narrative. It wasn't behind the manipulated story. But the Holy Spirit breathes upon the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. And it spreads. And it flies. And it goes. And people hear and people are saved. The Holy Spirit's like the jet fuel engine in the plane of the gospel. And it spreads. It expands. In fact, this really was the expectation all along. Holy Spirit propulsion. Say, why do you say that, Todd? I find something else quite intriguing in these verses. In fact, in your Bibles, in verse 7, verse 10, and verse 16, you should circle the word Galilee. Do you find it odd that in Matthew's account of the resurrection narrative, he mentions the location Galilee three times? In fact, it seems to be a conversational thread between various groups and various people. Why is that? 
Here's the answer, because Matthew is cluing us into something. There is more to come. There is more to the story. The resurrection isn't the end of the saga. It's not the end of something. It's the start of something. It's the start of gospel expansion. And just as Christ, if you recall, began his ministry in Galilee, and then it spread, watch this, those early disciples, apostles, who would be the foundational men for the church, that's what Ephesians tells us, they would get their commission in Galilee to spread the news to the ends of the earth. Very similar to how Jesus began. And so it begins to shed light on something. Matthew gives us the location Galilee to make sure we understand the expectation of the resurrection. That is far more than just an event. There's an expectation to it. And that's why the last few verses talk to us about the mission of the resurrection. Look with me, beginning in verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. That's where they were told to go three times. Do you remember? And so they traveled there to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And so Jesus came near. I love that part, don't you? What Jesus' response was to these doubts. He drew close and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations or all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Just so you'll notice, the phrase the end of the age was also mentioned back in Matthew 24 and 25 when he was so patiently helping his disciples prepare for what was to come. This is all part of that. This is an event that occurred probably after day eight, somewhere in that 40 days of appearances. He's commissioning his disciples. He's preparing them. He's helping them understand the full extent of his resurrection, that there's a missional element to it. Now, let me give you two aspects of this mission that I think are just uh, delightful. First of all, it is a mission, and it was a mission, of worship. Often when we read the Great Commission, we see the expectation of the resurrection that we're to go and share this news. We miss the fact that before there's witnessing, there is worship. In fact, you see it not only in verse 16 and 17. You see that? When the disciples first saw him, they fell down in worship. Do you see it back in verse 9? Remember the two ladies when Jesus met them? What was their first response? To worship. And so let's not get the uh, cart before the horse. Is that right? It's worship than witness every time. You see this in the Old Testament. You see it in the New. This is an aspect of the mission of the resurrection that must be in front of us but a submission of worship. You see, worship was the first thing to happen after the resurrection. It'll be the last thing to happen after the final resurrection. When Christ returns and we all then, as he was raised, all who believe are raised in like manner, guess what we'll do for eternity? We will worship God. We won't need to witness up there. We'll worship God forever. See, worship's not just the first thing. It's not just the last thing, it's the eternal thing. Revelation 5, Revelation 7. 
They'll be gathered around the Lamb of the throne, the only one who is worthy. People from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. A direct reference to the words of Christ when he said, preach the gospel to all ethnicities. There will be one day people from every single ethnicity around the throne doing one thing, worshiping the Lamb. Do you see why we call you weekly to unashamed adoration, to spending yourself in worship? As we said Friday night, to drying out your tear ducts because tears keep falling. From hearing, from knowing your heart has been ravaged by, by worship and scripture and the gathering, like moments in which we expend ourselves in God's presence for his glory and because he's worthy. Those are called for. And that's going to happen eternally. Worship is the bottom line. But listen to this. Because worship is the bottom line eternally, there now exists a second aspect of this mission. And it's the mission, the aspect of witnessing. Look with me what he says after verse 17. He explains what we know today is the Great Commission, to go and make disciples he further expands on that by saying, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. And we do this confident he's with us. So do you see what Christ is calling for here? We talked about gospel expansion, how the news would spread. This was the implication, the clear message. This was the mission of the resurrection. And so here he's saying in no uncertain terms, and just let's just be as crystal clear as possible, Seek, locate, find those who are not yet believers, who are not yet disciples. Share the news of the resurrection with them, of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. Call them to believe in Jesus as king and receive forgiveness and then baptize them, letting them profess their faith and then teach them to obey everything Jesus said. It's a quite uh, simple process verbally. I admit to you, this is a lifetime of learning to do it. Amen? There you go. But there's no question about what Jesus has called us to do. In fact, you would have to do textual gymnastics to think that Jesus didn't implicitly and explicitly expect his disciples to take the resurrection and share it with folks who did not yet believe and to see them come to faith. That is the clear implication of the text. It's the clear point of the narrative. Now, you can call it what you want. You can call it evangelism. You can call it discipleship. You can call it both. You can call it disciple-making. You can use the words multiplication. You can use the words spiritual reproduction. I'm good with all those. I don't want to argue about words. I want to get the job done. Amen, church? And this is the mission of the resurrection, that until there is worship of God by all peoples in heaven one day, we're to be about witnessing to all peoples and sharing with them the news of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is alive. He's king. You're to worship him. Now, I want to linger here for a bit. Don't put your brain in neutral. Because I've been thinking about my own shortcomings in this regard, that often when I think about my efforts at sharing my faith, at witnessing, and, and just talking about the Lord to 
my friends at the gym or when we're out to eat or just, you know, in life, like you, just in your normal course of life, how you bring up the conversation and how you share with people. Often it's the, the resurrection is kind of the last thing I get to. Now, maybe you're not like me, but often I'm, I'm starting with other things, you know, and get to the cross. And it's kind of like the resurrection is kind of the, like the uh, clincher. And I begin to wonder, is that what the early church did? Because if you look at Acts 1.8, after the resurrection, he said you'll receive power and you'll be witnesses of these things, both Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Like there's a sense in which you kind of understand that they were to now talk about the fact that Christ was alive to people who were near and far. So I did a quick scan of Acts and just kind of charted a thread between witnessing and the resurrection. I wanted to connect the dots. Like maybe I'm not talking about the resurrection enough. It's the evidential, historical, supernatural uh, event that proves Christ is king over everything. He said in Matthew 28, it's what gives him all authority. So maybe I should maybe start there even. So I did a quick thread. Can I just walk you through it? Don't put your brains in neutral. Keep your heart fully engaged, your ears, your mind. Let me walk you through briefly this thread that has just ignited my heart even more so for evangelism, discipleship, disciple-making, reproduction, multiplication. Pick your word. Look how closely connected the resurrection is to witnessing. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke starts off his historical account of all that Jesus began to do and teach, that's how he words it, with these words. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. That's verse 3. He starts the whole book off by saying, Jesus Christ is alive. In the end of chapter 1, the resurrection was a litmus test for the next apostle. Here's how Peter worded it. He says, it's necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. You go to Acts 2. Here's what Peter says to those who are listening at Pentecost. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. The next chapter, Peter's proclaiming to the crowd who had just witnessed the healing of the lame man, he says this, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We're witnesses of this. In chapter four, Peter and John are confronted by the temple captain, the Sadducees, about their preaching. Here's how they defended their actions. They pointed to the power found in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Into that very same chapter, Luke summarizes how the apostles generally preached the message of the gospel with this phrase, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let's not stop, not in neutral. Here's Acts 5. When the leaders again uh, were confronting the uh, those preaching the gospel, they remain committed to their continued preaching with this defense. This is amazing. We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus. You had him murdered by hanging him on a tree, and we're witnesses of all these things. The sense is like, 
you can kill us, but he might raise us up too. I mean, there's just no fear because of the resurrection. Fast forward to Acts 10. Peter's sharing the gospel with Cornelius, who's a Gentile. Here's how he shares the gospel with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything Jesus did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen. Not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses. <laughs> Two more, Acts 17, Paul's in Athens. Here's how Luke encapsulates all of Paul's preaching. That's a lot of encapsulation, right? Listen to these words. He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Lastly, in Acts 26, Paul's before Agrippa. And he says this. To this very day, I stand and testify to both small and great that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light. Church, the resurrection is central to everything the early Christians were saying and sharing. This is what they were actually witnesses of, the resurrection. In fact, can I just read a few, a simple paragraph from one author that I found very helpful to me about this whole thread and this thing. He says this, the pattern and content of the early church's preaching is centered upon a resurrected Christ, exalted by God to be Savior, King, and Judge. Thus, when we read that the apostles preached Jesus or preached the Word of God or proclaimed the gospel, it was their testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection upon which they focused. They had seen it all unfold. And they told everyone who would listen that the resurrection from the dead affirmed Jesus as Lord, Christ, and King. And so church, the news I have for you today is the news that Jesus suffered and died but was raised from the dead and is now King over death, hell, the grave, and sin, and quite frankly is King over your life. And he is calling for your worship. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping gods of your own making. You're trying your best to please God through your own efforts. You're trying to attach works to your life to prove that you're good enough. None of those will work. They're tainted at their source. Unholy effort and work would never match or meet the demands of a holy God. Only one Man's work will. It's the work of Jesus on your behalf at the cross. And I just would urge you, I'd pastorally plead with you, if you've yet to trust Christ, wherever you are in this room and whatever chair you're seated, would you just right now say, God, I turn from trusting anything other than your son, Jesus. And if Jesus is the only way, if he's the king and the resurrection proves it, I today bow my knee to Jesus, repent of sin, and trust Jesus as the only way to be saved. God, save me through what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection. And God, he will do what only God can do. He will save you from your sins. You see, what we're doing this morning is we're in a long line of people who've been witnessing to this good news century 
after century. We're not the first. This is not strange. It's been happening since the weeks after the resurrection. And together we stand in a large throng of not only witnesses, but worshipers who have been attesting to the miracle of Christ's bodily resurrection and his, his position now as king. And so why do we do this? Why do preachers do this? Why do churches do this? Why do worshipers witness? Because his miracle and mission call for our worship and witness. Truth is, this is really Matthew 28 summed up just in a few words, 8, 10, 11 words. His miracle and mission, i.e. the resurrection, it calls for our worship and witness. This is the central truth of Matthew 28. It's the central truth of that eighth day and every day since. The resurrection miracle calls all of us to a posture of missional living in which we are bold witnesses, unashamed worshipers, and we join God in the desire for all people everywhere to worship him. With your heart reverberating with Matthew 28, will you read this simple summary, this take-home truth with me? Together, church. His miracle and mission call for our worship and witness. And this is the question before all of us this morning. Will you worship King Jesus? Will you witness of King Jesus? And what I'm praying, church, is that God will continue to ignite revival sparks all across our flock. Things we've seen in different ministries, various moments, as I said, in pockets and places where the Holy Spirit manifestly displays his presence and the wind of God blows and people are saved. They're brought back from sin. They're given courage to take their stand as a follower of Jesus. And I'm praying for more of that, more boldness in worship, more boldness in our witness. I was talking to one of our Campbell's Collective students just after the 8 o'clock service. He was here on Friday. He said, Todd, I brought my friend. I think he got saved. This was Friday. He said, Todd, I brought my friend tonight. I think he got saved tonight. I texted him Saturday. He said, Todd, we got a new brother in Christ. I saw him at 8 o'clock this morning. He said, Todd, I'm so happy, aren't you? And we said, we rejoiced together. And I was talking to one of our young couples earlier about a a uh, young lady had been saved in, in their kind of circle of influence. Uh, Jean Freestead was baptized at 8, eight o'clock service, who's within one of our small groups and came to Christ in that way. Just across the landscape, revival sparks. This is the point of the resurrection. This is the expectation that there's a mission that we're on, and it's not finished until every nation, language, tribe, and tongue is represented in the throne, and there's worshipers of God. So church, let's be a worshiping church, and let's be a witnessing church. Every single aspect of that mission is rooted both in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed.